Mother Jones. If you can't picture her, she looks like the granny in Tweety Bird. <laughs> exactly. Right? That's so perfect. I never thought of that. <laughs> she is. She's Tweety Bird's she's, little grandma. She's the granny in Tweety Bird. And part of the reason why you should put in your mind right now the little granny who took care of Tweety Bird is because that is part of the reason why motherfucking Jones was able to do everything she was able to do was because yeah. remember when anybody fucked with Tweety Bird's grandma that she'd beat the shit out of him? <laughs> History I'd like to follow me Hi, welcome to Hilf, history I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. Thanks for joining me in The Den. That's the Deluxe Edition Network. To find more great podcasts in The Den, click the link in our show notes or go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Today, we're hilfing the Battle of Blair Mountain. Now, this deadly conflict took place in the hills of southern West Virginia between coal miners and mine owners in the early 1900s. It was the largest armed insurrection in American history since the Civil War. I mean, literal bombs were dropped on U.S. citizens, martial law, unarmed men were shot dead by private police in the middle of the street, and none of us learned about this shit in school. Hmm. Now, to thank for this panty dropper of a hilf is my guest, Peter Brettmeyer, and his resume in film and television scrolls for days and includes movies like Jingle All the Way, A Serious Man, and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, TV shows like The Middle, Fargo, and Documentary Now. I mean, hell, you might even recognize him from his many commercials, including alongside the legendary flow from Progressive. I know. He's also a buddy from the old days in Minnesota, and I love him. <laughs> Let's get started. And we have whiskey. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened with the Glenn Lovett. I don't know. Peter went to the bathroom. I poured the whiskey. I don't, you didn't have like a, a visual reaction to the size of the pour. Oh, but it was what a big happened pour. was, it was one of those where I got the shot glass out. Because I will just pour, like, I kind of get weird. I'm like, well, everyone's... But I was like, no, I have a company. I'm going to measure it with a shot glass. I'm going to do this properly. And so I poured a shot into each glass with ice. And then I was like, a shot and a half. He's company. So I was like, we'll just pour a little. And by the time I got a shot and a half in each glass, the amount left in the bottle was, you can't... You might as well burn and it off. And then, once I emptied the bottle into the two glasses, I could hear your footsteps coming down the hall. And I looked at the glasses that were in my hand, and I was like, he thinks I'm going to try to date rape him. <laughs> I did have an internal reaction to the fact that you were serving me a tumbler of Irish whiskey. And I don't have I was like, any. Oh, I, I thought we were going to Okay, well, this is good. No, this will lube us up and we'll it's be happy. It's a nip. Yeah, Here's the thing. Perfect. Your choice starts with how quickly you drink it. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll try, to, I'll try to compete if I can. <laughs> Listen, I have a cramp from scrolling your IMDb page. I have a I have a wrap around my arm I'm because so I was trying sorry. to get your credits and my arm broke. My favorite, mm-hmm. Jingle All the Way. You know, a lot of people bring that one up. Oh, Arnold you know, Schwarzenegger. It was filmed in Minneapolis. Christmas yeah. classic. Sparky was my character. <laughs> if you can't, if you're a big fan and you're like, who was You'll he? You'll know who Sparky was. He was the. And I'm gonna do the line. Okay, if I can remember it correctly. He's doing the thing, guys. He's looking down. The actor prepares. Okay. This is beautiful. Um, I'm looking down because I've already forgotten the line. 
I believe I look at Robert Conrad and I say, bomb expert, huh? Something like that. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, you oh, know, and because he's just blown himself He's up, blown, he's got you know. the soot. It's I, the, I think I'm getting the line wrong. But, it's great. You know, somebody will correct you. It's like the, but it has that like Warner Brothers, Wiley Coyote post-explosion. Exactly. Oh. Yeah, like he was running in midair and suddenly he fell. And then, and I'm like wisecracking on the side <laughs> as the deputy. The goofy cop. <laughs> I remember I stole a half-used Cuban cigar that Arnold Schwarzenegger left in an ashtray thinking, this will be a great souvenir because he smoked it halfway and he stopped because he said something about how it didn't taste right. And so I took it home and I put it in a Ziploc baggie and kept it for a few years and then looked at it in my hope chest and said, that's disgusting. Yeah. Why am I keeping this? It's and got... I finally threw it out. <laughs> oh. But for a while there, I had Arnold Schwarzenegger's half-smoked cigar. See, now that, so. I don't know, there's DNA on there. Mm -hmm. Could have been useful in a paternity mm -hmm. situation. <laughs> What is your favorite? You know, I love. I've I've been lucky and felt really great about the stuff I've done, and really happy that I've been able to do all that stuff. I'm playing the grateful actor now, but I really do mean it. Um, <laughs> but I really loved doing Fargo. Yeah, the series that was, and I and I really enjoyed doing the middle two because they they were really sweet, and you know, and that was, and I mean, every job's a great job in in some ways, you know. Uh, but I think that those, and, and I love working with the Coen brothers doing mm. A Serious Man because I think that movie is one of their best movies, but it's a, kind of an underappreciated movie. I mean, it's the autobiographical movie about them growing up as Jewish boys in mm -hmm. St. Louis Park in, the, in Minnesota, for God's sake, you know. And so, I don't know, I'd, I'd, say, I'd say those, but I'm, you know, I've had a lot of fun things. I worked with like Clint Eastwood on changeling and that was really interesting Whoa, and cool had a in, weird encounter with um not weird but interesting encounter with john malkovich on that movie that is a story for another day oh but, yeah. god we gotta hear and it that was good <laughs> but yeah so it's yeah and, and yeah you know it's been it's been really a, a a privilege and a happy you know lucky place to be able to do what you love to do for a living and yeah support your family and uh and do interesting work. It's been a little tricky lately because of the yeah. strike, but you know. Which I really, I mean, and what a transition. As you and I sit down and record this episode right now, we are both striking actors. Uh, again, as we record this, the SAG after strike is in its third yeah, month? Yeah, like three months or something like that. Um, how has that impacted you? Uh, like everybody else, you know, everything's super slow. I mean, there's parts of the, obviously there's parts of the contract you can still work, you know, commercials and other mm -hmm. things. And then there's these interim agreement things that I haven't gotten one of, but I have some friends who have gotten. So when they told me, I was like, oh, so how, how did you get the more, that thing where you were working on a movie? And then, mm -hmm. and then can I do it? Can I be in it? Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's just been... You know, it's been different, so you occupy yourself with other things. Lots of time for podcasts. Yes. <laughs> it has been a true joy researching this project. I am very curious Absolutely. what was happening on your side of the world to bring this subject to me. I was reading another book mm. that had nothing to do with Blair Mountain, and they talk about this incident mm. for a couple of pages in the book, and I'm like, I have never fucking heard of this. Mm this is really weird and interesting. Like, 
And then it was like struck me. I mean, then I was thinking, well, I'm doing this. I should just say this. I should just suggest this. And I didn't expect you to like say, yes, let's do that. I thought you'd like, well, let me look at it, you know? Sure. And you kind of like looked at it and then you kind of jumped on it. I was like, okay, great. So that's all. That's that's how it came about. It was illuminating, heartwarming. Mm -hmm. I cried. I read this stuff. And amazingly, too, I sat down with my primary source, the book that I that I got to kind of get started on this because and I'll illuminate why this is a new history to me. It was a subject I knew next to nothing about going in and now have this like brand new crush on. And whenever I do that, whenever I know, boy, like I'm going into this thing cold, you know what I mean? It's like generally how I approach it is I usually do a sort of cursory review, your sort of Wikipedia page, your general search. What are the broad strokes of this history? Even if all I'm getting right now is what people think they know, which is often what you're getting in that first search. What do people think they know? What do people associate? What are the names, illusions, and subjects that are associated with this history? Then I try to find a source. All I really prefer books because I'm a nerd. And, I'm, and then librarians. when... Librarian. <laughs> Sexy librarian. <laughs> exactly. And then when was that book written? Sometimes your best book is written as close to the event as possible. Sometimes you want one that has a lot of perspective that was written close in time. Mm. You know what I mean? And I get into it that way. And so I took a picture of the book when I got it and I sent it to Peter. And I found out when we sat down that he's also read the book. So... <gasps> oh, my God. A plus. We have whiskey. We, we both read so this book. book. So I So this is the book, The Battle of Blair Mountain. Uh, the Story of America's Largest Labor Uprising by Robert Shogun. Did you enjoy this book when you read it? You know, I found it really, really interesting. But what it made me want was to read more other source material. Mm. Like it made me want to kind of look because it, the book is in, the book is really informative and really interesting. It's it, at times a little bit dry, not dry. That's the wrong word. Um, I, I just kind of, it felt like a really, really good overview of the whole thing. Word, yeah. yeah. I think it was a, I think it's a very good book. Uh, yeah. It just made me more interested more, and I thought, well, Dawn will do all that work. So. <laughs> oh, and gladly, <laughs> and she'll do it with a stiff pour. Yeah. I went to um, uh, the PBS documentary on the Coal Wars because the Battle of Blair Mountain is like the culmination. It's like the final chapter of really a series of conflicts that started exactly like 20 years prior. And so this like... <laughs> four-part PBS. I was naked, covered in frosting, whole thing. It was a real party. Um, <laughs> oh, what a joy. Then, oh, my God. I hope you had somebody to go down on you during that whole period. I'm I mean, telling it's you, a, it's yeah. impossible not to. You walk in the room, you get yeah, it yeah, just yeah. happens. Um, and then there's a podcast. Do you listen to the Wondery American Storytellers? Yes, every now and again. Oh, think, yeah. You know, I, yeah. I mean, if you love this podcast, chances are very good that you're at least aware of it. And if not, get the hence. Uh, just beautiful storytelling around historical events. And they have a four-part series on the Cold Wars that culminates um, not this just This is why you're better than me. Because <laughs> no. you watched, watched and listened to all this stuff. And I do I all just this read stuff. The I tell book. you what, I go tits deep in this shit. I love it. And then just in case you weren't rock hard yet. <laughs> uh, uh, what? <laughs> Stop it, you'll break my equipment. <laughs> uh, these microphones are going everywhere. With all of these things gathered around us oh god here's my plan okay so i've said the battle of blair mountain is the culmination of this 20 years of of the coal wars and those coal wars very generally are are conflicts between the the mine 
workers themselves and the mine owners and then the mine owners hired private police and various violent thugs. And they're generally fighting over three things, pay, work conditions, and the right to join a union. But for me, I mean, if I started, <laughs> if I started with the Battle of Blair Mountain, it would be like starting the Lord of the Rings with when Sam's carrying Absolutely. Frodo up to Mount Doom. It has to go back up. You yeah. have to back it up. Yeah. Right. A good WGA writer knows what you and I know, which is if we're really going to fuck this history, what we need to do is cast our hero. Yeah. Right. I got, we got to have a good hero. to fight. We're going to find, we're going to, we're going to strap this fuckable fucking history that spans decades to a hero. And we're going to let this history flow behind them like a veil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of smokers in this story. <laughs> I'm not going to be, I'm going to be like, there's a lot of smokers in the story. We got mother. There's, Joan. Some, there's some pictures of them in that book. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like their teeth be nasty, but like, damn, yeah. um, the, the hero that I've cast for us. Can you guess? I'm actually curious. Can you guess who it no, is? No, I want to hear. Because there's so many mm. in that. There's interest. I mean, I, I kind of, I, I want to hear what you're going to say. Sid Hatfield. Yep. <laughs> right? Yep. Sid Hatfield. Ladies, mm, open up, buggle up. This motherfucker, smiling Sid. Charming. Mm. And if you're thinking Hatfield... Like the Hatfields and McCoys? I yes. I think you're thinking correctly. You are absolutely right. If you have any understanding of this sort of West Virginia, Kentucky history, there is a legendary feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. The general fight between them is that the ha- the McCoys are fighting for the Confederacy and the Hatfields are fighting for the Union, so you have that. But they're also fighting over moonshine competition. There is land disputes. There are revenge killings. It yeah. is a hot yeah. history. So Sid Hatfield, he can draw his line to the the patriarch of Devil Ansey, who was the 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 sharpshooter, like the the guy on the and the Hatfield side. But he has the name. He's a sharpshooter. He fights. He likes to play pool. He likes to shoot whiskey. He is he embodies. <laughs> I want to fuck him. He is now the police chief of a small town called Matewan in West Virginia. Okay. And it is May 19th, 1920, and Smiling Sid, he's known for his gunplay, he's known for his bar fights in the pool, he's known for his honesty and his goodness and his, and his uh, keeping to the law in the city of Matewan. And, he and don't forget in our context, his fuckability. He's got this jawline. And when, I mean, smiling Sid is a thing. His teeth is gross, but it, you don't care because when he smiles, it's... <laughs> so Sid catches wind that the coal operators violent thugs are evicting violently evicting these coal miner families and he's like fuck and it is because they live in this company housing right and the idea is that if you live in the coal mine company housing they can kick you out for any reason for at any time for any violation of their laws you your family your kids it's like the idea is they just they really don't feel like they've done their jobs unless the kids are sticky and crying and sitting in a mud puddle you know what i mean like that yes we've really it's not about getting you out it's about hurting you it's about embarrassing you it's about if you're not wallowing in filth then we haven't done our job as bosses exactly we just won't be able to go home happy we hope you understand and they do this because it's work for 20 years Hmm. right this is how it's been we scare you and we make you penniless and we make you desperate right it's a scam it's a sham everybody's being exploited right but not in mate one 
Not in Matewan, because in Matewan, West Virginia, this little town, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's an oasis. It's an independent town. The coal miners don't run it. And, and it's not just Smiling Sid that we have as our good guy. We got a trifecta of good guys in Matewan. We've got Smiling Sid. We've got the guy who appointed him, Cable Testerman. And we've got Blankenship, Sheriff Blankenship. These guys, the reason they're sort of perfect, the perfect trifecta is because they're not coal miners. They're, they're sympathetic to the coal mines and the coal unions, but they aren't themselves in that gang, in that mine, in that union, right? And they can't be bribed. They have a lot in common with like the untouchables, like everybody else who seems like they could be a stopgap between the mine owners and this horrible system has, been, has a price. And each one of these guys, to this point, has been offered some sort of bribe and has turned it down. Um, specifically, and I love this, um, Sheriff Blankenship had arrested these guys for evicting people from their homes. And the guy was like, all right, you arrested me. Here's your bribe. And he turned the bribe down. He said, you pay your fine to the county. That's how you get out of here, not to me. <gasps> Right. Mm. Then a couple weeks later, these same guys came to Cable Testerman, the mayor of Mate One. <laughs> can we, super quick, can we put machine guns on the roof of all these buildings? <laughs> Just because we're worried about something happening exactly. that needs to be machine gunned. Who knows? And Cable <laughs> Testerman was like, wow, why would you do that? This is a really peaceful town. And they were like, we'll give you $1,000 to your reelection campaign, which any dollar amount in this time you multiply by 10, mm -hmm. that's a beginning for how much we're talking about. 10 grand, nobody, no, 10 grand doesn't mean nothing to, right? Yeah. He turns it down, says no, and you can't put your machine guns on here, okay? So now they've been arrested, and now these fucks are back in mate one, and these guys catch went fucking throwing people shit in the street, and they're being those fucks, and we told them they couldn't do this. So Sid and Cable Testerman ride up on these fools and are like, what the fuck, man? And this is my favorite part. As they're riding up, Albert Feltz, who is one of the heads of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, which are the hired private police thugs, violent arm of the mine owners, yep. the ones who do all the dirty work. He himself is there. It's a big deal. You know, the boss shows up for work. It's always a big deal. So Albert Feltz is there throwing dolls and breaking bread and all this stuff. And he has in his pocket a bribe for Sid, because he's like the one they haven't quite been able to get to, right? And he has in his pocket $300 a month, and more than just that, an excuse. Because we know you're like all best friends, and you're all good guys, so you're going to need some kind of bullshit excuse to tell the other guy. So we'll come up with something that will make it save you from looking like... Yeah, we'll give you, you a, we'll give you a reason us. so you can you can you have some kind of a cover story as to why yeah. you changed your mind. Yeah. You're welcome. We're, we know you don't want to look bad, yeah. right? But he doesn't ever offer that bribe to Sid because Sid comes in hot. Sid like rolls in and is like, "What the fuck, man? You can't do this. We fucking arrested you already. This is not allowed. You know that. Where's your goddamn warrant?" Right? So Albert Feltz at least has the presence of mind to be like, "I this isn't the best time." To offer yeah. him spread. And instead he says, don't be so thing. mad. We have a warrant to evict these people. And Sid says, show me. And he goes, I didn't, it's not a written warrant. Yeah. <laughs> the judge said it was fine. Okay. This is a case of uh, phone tag. Have you ever played phone tag? 
Yes. Sid. So phone tag is where like one person tells one person a thing and then mm-hmm. the next person tells the next person mm-hmm. and then it goes down the line. And in this right. really, but in this case, the exact same thing that was told mm-hmm. to the first person was told to the sixth person. And, and I, I'm the sixth person. And I'm the sixth person. And now you're the seventh. Lucky seven. You win. Here's $300 a month, please. Right? So Sid and Cable Testerman, they're not going to fight these guys. I mean, you know, and they also know like, fuck. So like, all right, okay. Dicks, fucking dicks flying everywhere, but they ultimately leave. They go, they call Sheriff Blankenship though, you know, our third guy. And they're like, Nat can't do this, right? Like we already said, and he was like, no, totally. You can arrest them. They're breaking the law. Mm -hmm. But to do that, you need warrants uh, for their arrest. Yeah. Okay. So so a guy hustles. To arrest the evictors, you need the warrants. We got the warrants who don't have a warrant, right? So dude gets on a train to get up to the city. Okay. I witnessed the warrants and he... The person who has the warrant for Sid Hatfield and Cable Testament to arrest these baddies is on a train that is going to be pulling into Matewan at 5.15 a.m. And Sid fucking left the eviction site, got all this stuff, and is waiting for that train. Because he's going to get the warrant. He's going to fucking arrest these guys. It's the same train that the baddies are taking home. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh-oh. We, they're now all converging in this teeny tiny little town to the same train station. Smile and Sid and our buddy Albert Feltz arrive at the train station at the same time, by all accounts, smiling. Hello, hello. And Sid says, I have a warrant for your arrest. It will be arriving on that train. And I'll be Albert Feltz. Interesting. Oh. <gasps> I have a warrant for your arrest. <gasps> yes, Exactly. In the meantime, Cable Testerman comes out and says, hello, fellas. Couldn't help but notice you're talking about warrants. <laughs> Just overheard <laughs> it. Just overheard you over there. Getting Seems coffee to be kind of, inside in the lobby, and I overheard my you talking ballpark. about warrants. <laughs> and he says to Albert Feltz, heard you had a warrant. Let's see it. And he presents a piece of paper, which, to be fair, this is progress. <laughs> His last warrant was like, I promise. And this one was actually something written down. And he presents a warrant, to which Cable Testerman says, it's bogus. And someone else overlooking it says, it may as well have been written on gingerbread. Albert Feltz pulls a gun. By the time that 515 train pulls into Matewan Station. Bodies everywhere. Uh Uh-huh. 100 shots were fired. It had been 20 minutes. And 10 people are dead, including Mayor Cable Testerman and Albert Feltz. Holy (laughs) fuck, right? Yep. This shootout in Matewan Station is only the most recent event involving violence and clashes between the powers of mine owners and miners over the last 20 years. All the West Virginia hills, how majestic and how grand will the Why coal? Why coal? Why is suddenly this one commodity vastly changing all of these people and all of this landscapes? And it is quite simply because it is everything. It ran everything. It, it purified the steel that built everything. It ran the steamships that carried everything. 
but it wasn't even something like it, it, frankly, I think the closest thing I can come to is like internet where you go, I know the internet runs AT&T, the military and the U S government, but it's also how I get my recipes. Yep. It isn't just big. It's little coal heats your home. Yeah. Coal, coal was the primary source of energy everything for the country at the time. I mean, mm -hmm. oil was, oil was something that existed and that was being used, but coal was still the primary way that they generated electricity and that they did all the things that you just listed. And the question really was, who are these miners? Like, who are these humans yeah. who are going underground and getting this thing? They were, for the most part, depending on the state you were in, but largely in every state where coal mining happened, they were native born individuals who had been in agriculture and the coal mines came in when the industrial revolution was just starting and the value of coal was still somewhat speculative and they buy fucking everything and they're buying these farms these these agricultural fields from our american mountaineers our homesteaders are like pump your chest they hacked their way through the wilderness you know what i mean they built these farms and they've been farming it for a generation or so the coal mines come and buy all this shit and they didn't even know why Right? And they're buying, and, and then, the most important thing is they're buying the mineral rights. Well, not immediately, because it took a minute, because there were just enough people who said no. And some oh, of the people no, said no because they wanted to keep their farm. Mm -hmm. And some of the people were saying no because they kind of knew maybe there was coal there. Then the fuckery and the politics and the bullshit gave these already heavily moneyed interests the ability to buy the rights under your land. So if you held out, whether you were aware of there was coal under your land or not, just said, thank you, no, I'd rather keep my farm, right? They would buy the coal, the rights under your land, mine that coal, poisoning your water, killing your fields, killing your livestock. Your land is now valueless, at which point they come back to you and offer you a penny for your land, which you take, of course, because you have nothing less. You couldn't sell it to anybody else. And now also you work for me underground. This seems to me an important mentality, like note for these individuals, because I have no personal connection to these coal mines of West Virginia. I, I think of it as somewhat alien. It is like another mm -hmm. country to me from where I grew up. And I have some isms that I've received, like everybody from popular culture and from images of these coal miners who are just kind of dumb mm -hmm. and rural and happy to be in those mines. And somehow it's generational and they take great pride and great, great granddaddy went down in those mines and that's where they want to be. And I just sort of stopped thinking about it after that. That of course is a fucking fiction anyway. But even if anything yeah. like my misunderstanding of these individuals was true, it wasn't true for that first generation. They used to own the land they were under. Yeah. They, they had blue skies above their heads and they drank clean water. And now, they're underground. So it was a bit shocking and the best option they had. Those who weren't native born were immigrants, immigrants who would, you know, come into New York or wherever and were told, hey, there's a great job for you out in the coal fields. And they understood kind of what was going on. Some of them were told accurately what was happening. And that was better <laughs> than what they had anywhere else. They're like, great underground. I get my own shovel. Fuck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Boy, right, I didn't get a shovel uh, back in Ireland. This sounds lovely. I had to pay for my shovel. This right. time they're leasing it to me. Right, Oi, right, Seamus, they give us shoes, you know. So, yeah, they were delighted. And black and white, you also had um, formerly enslaved black people from the South who were coming up 
uh, to work in these coal fields because it was a great, and to be fucking fair, Peter, it wasn't the worst job. If you just looked at it at a glance from what they were offering in those early days, I mm-hmm. mean, you, you're, you know, you're working underground, but you're also being paid by the ton. Yeah. And you could kind of, you could work when, whenever you want. It wasn't like the mines closed. It wasn't yep. like you work at Target when we schedule you. And if you want, you, because you get paid by the ton, and technically you're not supposed to work until you're 12, but you bring your kids down. They go down in the mine with you. You fill up a thing. You go home at eight. Or you and your five buddies can like fucking turn it out because you're strong and you don't have kids yet and you're able to make a bunch of money. You set your hours, make your team. It could have been a reasonable job that people liked and people even wanted if it weren't for the fucking bosses. Yeah. And when I talk about greed in this episode, it is, it's difficult for me to comprehend why and how they couldn't make it work fairly for these individuals. I wanted names, the bosses. I have Sid Hatfield, I have Cable Testerman. You're gonna hear a bunch of names of miners who fought and striked and were part of the revolution. And you're gonna hear plenty of names of uh, Albert Feltz and his agents and these violent thugs who faced off and fought against each other. What I wanted to know is who's the JP Morgan? They, this book calls the mine operators, the mine operators, the mine owners, the four part fucking documentary calls them the mine owners and the mine operators. The West Virginia historical society calls it the mine operators and the mine owners. Who the fuck were these people and what are their last names? And do you want to know? I didn't even notice that. Let's see. This is why you're you're smart and brilliant and perceptive. And I am just like a person who's like a little sponge that I take. Mm. Oh, look at that book. But it wasn't just that they don't mention it. They they? don't. They don't talk about those. Because it is a shame. And because these families, I promise you this, the wealth accumulated by these unnamed mine owners and mine operators has not yet been spent. I promise you their descendants, their great, great, great grandchildren have still not spent and are absolutely still capitalizing on the wealth that was made during the events that we're about to talk about. And the reason why we don't know their names is because we probably know their names because they're probably all over buildings where you went to college and they're probably all over the banks and they're probably all over the parks. And if we associated those names with the bad guys in this story, what would happen? And so if you want to know the power of history. And to personalize it even more, a lot of those names are tangentially or directly or indirectly names that maybe have hired us for jobs. Word. The life that they've rendered for these miners who live in these camps. And and Peter, you have mentioned some of these specific things, right? It's sort of, and you know, they go in there and they're like, hi, thank you so much for your family farm. Enjoy your time underground, right? It's going to be very scary <laughs> under there. We yeah. have, we, we, you know what? There's also salt down there. Yeah. So oh, there's and here's salt a headlamp. and coal. Oh, enjoy. And, and yeah. this is a light for your head. Yeah, and be careful. Oh, we're just kidding. Blow up. There'll You're be a, a lot of crawling, and there'll be <laughs> some. Right. You know, we don't supply knee pads, so no. you'll need to put no. something on your knees. You're not going to live long enough to have yeah. bad knees. Exactly. You weren't paid with money. You weren't paid with government issued currency that you could spend however you want. You were paid in scrip. Scrip came in a couple different ways, but it was essentially fucking arcade tokens. It was it was things that you could turn in, like money 
for goods and services, but they were only available to you in the company store, which was owned by the mines. And they sold you not just your food, your bread, your coffee. They also sold you the dynamite that you needed to mine their coal. It's also where they sold you the pickaxes you needed to mine their coal. It's also where they, right? And so if you had, and they did these hard fought victories for some sliver of representation, right? That you raise our wages slightly to just make up for whatever they would go, they'd fight tooth and nail but even if they lost, they just raised the prices at the company store, mm-hmm. lower the value. And if you took your script and wanted to cash it in for government issue credit, be like, fuck this place. I'm going to fucking move to fucking Tennessee where it's slightly less fucked. <laughs> you know what I mean? They would cash out your script for a fraction of the price. So you you were stuck in this cycle of, of credit, right? They deduct your rent. Be- and it wasn't like you had a choice. There was nowhere else to shop. They would run out anyone else. They would never, you would never have any opportunity to live anywhere else. You were trapped, Complete right? Complete control. Um, and and at one housing, point they were negotiating. At one point they, they, they were trying to negotiate like some terms, like they were using the government to try to help them. To go, can you please like tell the mine owners that at least we can shop at a place that's other than the, the government's, other than their store? Can we have that at least? You know, it's like, well, okay, I, I guess we'll try to throw that in, but there's really no stores for miles. But and you weren't, yeah, because you were also so removed, right? Yeah. And and then your next uh, recourse, right? If you're a miner, you, you this is your life. Whether you're whether they bought the farm, whatever it was, you're there, and this is your reality. Elections. We're Americans. It's the early 19th. We can work. And and there there is so much uh, history of election interference, where the mine owners would collect the ballots of the miners. So what happened after they collected their ballots? Who knows? They would say, if you're really wondering who won, go look in the river. I think yeah. you'll find the flo- tabulation floating in the around. River. They didn't even mm-hmm. bother to. They didn't even bother yeah. to sto- dispose of them, other than yeah. to throw them in the right. river. They're floating around. Don't forget me, little darling, when they lay me down to rest. The job itself was so dangerous. On a good day, you know, your back hurt and your feet were aching because you were just hunched over in the dark. But on a really bad day. Everybody died. There are so many mining disasters, but I am going to tell you about one in particular because it was it was uh, it wasn't the only, but it was big enough to change legislation. It took place in Monoga, West Virginia, in 1907. Um, It killed 362 miners. They, again, I mentioned earlier that because you were paid by the ton, you could bring your family with you. And a lot of these miners were bringing their brothers and their kids down there to help them. And at 1028 AM, there was a huge explosion and it could have happened for a number of reasons because their headlamps, which were used to light the dynamite, lit the dust in the air instead because of backup fumes. There were a lot of reasons there could have been an explosion. And this thing was, you know, devastating, as you can imagine, and devastating enough that it changed 1910. We get the United States Bureau of Mines. And this is, I'm talking the bare minimum, which is like, okay, you know, we know this is dangerous. We know we got to have coal. Everybody knows it's like, you know, it's dangerous, little thing, but we can get some better ventilation. We can do it literally the barest minimums. Yeah, but we're going to supply everybody with gum. And you're welcome. And, Fresh breath. And uh, we're going to have a lot more parakeets mm-hmm. down there. And the dynamite is going to be spelled with a Y. So it's not so <laughs> aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> But even that, 
whatever they the the Bureau of Mines did in 19 not in fucking West Virginia. Yeah. Okay? Because southern West Virginia where our battle is about to take place. Part of the reason why I'm giving you all this kind of down to yep, yep. because southern West Virginia, like coal itself, is a compacted, tightly uniquely special place in and among all of the conditions I've already described. One of them is geographically, it's just fucking middle of fucking nowhere. Still, God bless them. God bless you, West Virginia. Yeah. You know it. Really isolated. Very yeah. isolated. Which means even if you get these hard fought things, and even if it's legal, there's no one to enforce these laws. There's, there's no repercussions for someone who says, I understand that that's yep. the new rule, but I don't give a fuck, right? Yep. That contributed to the fact that in Southern West Virginia, specifically the space around Blair Mountain, there are more accidents and deaths than anywhere else. The pay is lower than anyone else. The housing is shittier. The company store is more expensive. And any teeny tiny fucking minor attempt to unionize is violently and immediately struck down. And the first one happens in 1902. Look at that. See? That's first little goosebumps. Oh, it's coming up. First little it's goosebumps, 1902. I can see the angle of the light coming mm. through the window that your hair is standing on. You know, on you think, is Don really like to fuck history? Yeah. <gasps> this history fucking is not metaphorical for this show. 20 years before the Matewan shootout that opened our fair story, yeah. okay? And these miners just they literally like stick their head like, this is kind of unfair. Don't you guys think this is very Can I American? Talk to somebody? Uh, I mean, kind of sucks. Wondering. I've heard there's a union, and they're shot in their beds in the middle of the night, and their bodies are left in the streets. It is put out like this, and part of the reason why we know that 190 strike went down hard and fucking fast is because Mother Jones, henceforth known as Mother Fucking Jones, <laughs> was there. She saw them bodies, mm-hmm. and it broke her heart. The person of Mother Jones. If you can't picture her, she looks like the granny in Tweety Bird. <laughs> exactly. Right? That's so perfect. I never thought of that. <laughs> she is. She's Tweety Bird's she's, little grandma. She's the granny in Tweety and Bird. And part of the reason why you should put in your mind right now the little granny who took care of Tweety Bird is because that is part of the reason why motherfucking Jones was able to do everything she was able to do was because, like the little old granny in Tweety, she kind of walked. Remember when she beat the shit out of somebody with an umbrella? Yep. Remember when anybody fucked with Tweety Bird's grandma that she'd beat the shit out of and him? And she cursed like a sailor exactly. and they all were amused by it because exactly. it was an like old granny lady saying, GD it and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, and they, they loved, loved her. And she didn't come by that inauthentically. Mother Jones came to the United States as a teenager from Ireland during the potato famine. So she was already a hungry, starving immigrant. She gets married. She has four kids. All of them. Her husband and her four kids die during a yellow fever outbreak. <gasps> Can't even imagine. She gets it together. She builds a dress shop. Unbelievable. In today's standards, for a single woman to get her shit together and build an industry, her dress shop fucking burns down in the Chicago fire. So when we meet Mother Jones, this bitch has nothing left to lose. And she didn't see any of that shit that happened in her life. The potato famine, the yellow fever, or the Chicago fire as acts of God. She knew very well these tragedies that had struck her were acts of greed, They were the results of bad legislation by greedy men. And she was right. The potato famine, the dust bowl, this is 
this is unsustainable farming. This yeah. is. This is people who just go, fuck the trees, fuck everything, fuck yeah. the water. I, potatoes, 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 potatoes. Greed and bad policy and choices knew, and all yeah, that. Yeah. The, everything that had hit her, she was not She was not one of those to be like, well, the Lord decides. She was like, uh-uh. And I don't obviously know Mother Jones, and I don't know this kind of suffering. But I kinda can see through a keyhole of my own life's experience a time where I go, oh, I'm burning it down. Do you know what I mean? I'm I ain't got nothing it to lose. To the ground. Shoot me through the heart <laughs> or step aside and mean it. Yeah. Kill me. Or move because I don't, it doesn't make any difference to me. It's a, it's, it's something like rock bottom. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's that powerful yeah. thing of an individual, right? With nothing left to lose. But her heart was broken when she went up to that 1902 strike and she just watched them get slaughtered. But one little nugget, little seed, little gem that she planted up there in West Virginia was in the heart of a guy named Frank Keeney. And Frank Keeney, when she met him in West Virginia, he's a young guy, late, early 20s, and he's playing pool. He works in the mine, and he's drinking and having fun, and he's a guy. Mm -hmm. And this is perhaps my perspective. Mother Jones kind of dead poets societies, Frank Keeney. She pulls him aside, and she says, you know, you could lead these men. I see something in you. And she gave him Shakespeare. And she gave him copies of literature to read. And she went fucking home. She didn't think about him again, probably. But this guy, Frank Keeney, like an oyster with a little pearl, he fucking reads all of the Shakespeare she left. And then he reads Les Miserables, which as you and I both know is a yeah. story of class and labor. And, and he yeah. becomes engendered with this sort of revolutionary spirit. Flash forward. Okay, 1912, 10 years after that first failed strike, our guy Frank Keeney still living up there, but he's living in a tent with his pregnant wife because he got fucking evicted for fucking thinking about fucking joining a union, for suggesting that there's a chance for a better life for these fucking guys. Yeah. He doesn't feel, he's like, I don't have anything to lose, and I'm living in a tent. And so he goes from this southern West Virginia to Charleston, the capital city, which is a hike, right? And he gets up there, that's where the union headquarters are, and he's like, hi. Oh God! I'm so, sorry, I'm so fucking tired. Um, I am. Um, oh you know, nobody God. told me that walk so was. Hard. That's a big walk. I must have taken like a, I don't know, like a taxi or like a. How know. are you guys? You guys good? Yeah. Okay, I was wondering if you could possibly come unionize our town, because we're ready, we're desperate, and we need you guys. And the union. And we all know this. Unions aren't perfect. I yeah. am a union. I have, I'm a part of many unions. And my, oh, my, wherever, whoever I think are the good guys in this story is clear. That don't mean I don't know the ways in which the absolutely. union Absolutely. Nobody, nobody in this story comes out smelling like a rose. No. Even if you're on one side or the other. And of Correct. course, we're, I'm on the union side. Correct. But nobody comes out smelling like a rose. There's right. all kinds of shit that goes down. Yep. And yeah, yeah. You want to throw shit? It hits everybody's yeah, wall, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And in this instance, the United Mine Workers, which was fairly strong, had done great work and... Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Illinois, and had done great unionizing, couldn't get, as we pointed out, into this West Virginia area. It was, it was just an impossible task. And they're not, they don't have any union members there. So they're not making any money there. Mm -hmm. So what you're really asking is, would you please spend all of the other union members' money on us who aren't giving you any money yet? And the union is still just like, eh, no. And it also, it's yeah. so scary up there. You know, the last time we went there, they killed us. Ugh. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, so, and Frank Keeney says, if you aren't man enough, I know a woman who will go. 
And he goes and he finds Mother Jones. And this bitch, 10 years older than she was, she was always an old lady. Yep. She was, gets her titty up and goes with him. She only had one tit? One, but she got it all the way up. Wow. Was it, it must have <laughs> no, been really, really You know, high. those dresses really do create Or maybe kind she of had two, but one was down and one was up. But like later, yeah. probably both were up. She only brought one. She left one at home. Oh, just in case. That's not right. But she does. She brings all her titties and all uh-huh. of her, and all, and all of her profanity. And she goes up there to Southern West Virginia and she fucking stirs, makes a fucking stink. 1912 and they strike and they march and they listen to her because she says fuck. And because she says, you're not any goddamn babies. Don't let them treat you like fucking fools. And these guys were like, oh my God. And grandma and the, says, jump, we're jumping. And there was, there was this power, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she had it. they don't, it's a long story. We don't have time for it. They don't kill them all in their beds. It's a mess. There's martial law for a while. There's blood spilled on both sides. But what ultimately happens at the end of this 1912 strike is what they call an uneasy peace, mm-hmm. which basically means empty promises and just placation. And we're promised we're going to try to do better. Mm-hmm. It's a very abusive relationship. You yeah. know what I mean? But at the end of it, Mother Jones goes home. Frank Keeney makes friends with this guy, Fred Mooney, and they at least, at the end of this, if there's anything like a like tangible victory, they get elected into the United Mine Workers Union, which means, eh, at least we have representatives in the big union who yeah. give a goddamn about what's going on yeah, down here. That's a start. Yeah. yeah. And then bing, bang, boom. A big old war starts. And I like to call World War I, holy shit. Oh. <laughs> you thought you needed coal before, girl. You need some big ass coal now. Girl, we need coal, girl. We got all these ships and all these weapons and all these things and everything is steel and coal, 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 coal. So one of the things it does for our thing that's already been fucking brewing is we need more of it. So we need more people working in there. We've got the government is ready to pay people and all these rich fucks are getting even more money now from the War Department. Our miners, some of them, of course, are drafted, go to World War and get in them trenches. And some of our miners are given special deferment because, because their job's more important here. We got to get the coal Fighting out of the, the ground. Yeah, we can't fight the war without the thing. And then the trench warfare and, and it's fucking nuts. Okay, fast forward, World War One ends on November 11th, 1918. That was nuts, <laughs> right? Holy fuck. And everyone comes back now to wherever they were before World War One started. And just like before COVID and after COVID and before you have a baby and after you have a baby just and before like you go, everything's different. <sighs> oh my God, everything's exactly the same. <laughs> I'm just fatter. Oh God. <laughs> You know, nothing's changed. That's exactly what happens here. The old shit's the same, but now shit's gotten more desperate because them fucking greedy fucks got used to those mind-boggling crazy wartime profits. They're not ready to go back down. Yeah. And all these labor, we needed all these people. And we hired all these people to get all this coal. And now the demand has gone substantially down and, and, the, and the situation for our miners has not improved at all. Yeah. Because they don't, they're not, need, I mean, there's not as many miners, miners are needed. So it's not a right. great time to be negotiating right. for more money and for more blah, 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 yes. you know, especially when the demand goes down. Yeah. So we have 20 years on the treadmill of the same goddamn conflict. 
that has now come to a war that we thought was the war to end all wars. Mm -hmm. And now we've come home and we've just had a shootout at the train station in Matewan, West Virginia. And that's where we're going to come back after we take a short break. I'm riveted. <laughs> this podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. As long as we're tipping our cap to unions, let's hear it for those who have united with me by tipping. <laughs> My patrons. Oh, how I love them. The latest to contribute to my historical lust. Jeff H., Laura, and William J.P. Mm. Listen, it is a little stupid how much work I put into these episodes. And with the help of my patrons, I am able to do it with working headphones and the good whiskey. You know, I owe them deeply. If you'd like to join them, have access to bonus episodes, and hear your name here next time, yay, <laughs> go to patreon.com slash podcast and then... Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. I'm listening to you doing the thing and there's like you started talking about Mother Jones and I was like and in my head is like Pete don't get ahead of yourself don't get ahead of yourself because I started like oh no Mother Jones and I wanted to, I was like no oh. wait we're not there yet we're not to the point where okay, we yeah. talk about that you know, like, so you know what we call that we call that a historical cock ring you you are holding your erection oh, until your partner you're such a generous a lover you hold that you go to... I could have come Mm -hmm. but, but i just wait. said for your sake god bless you yeah. i'm gonna send michelle a text <laughs> <laughs> say i just want you to know that i know i know how good he is don't wait up <laughs> so it's been about a year mm -hmm. since the shootout and mm -hmm. our boy sid's got to stand trial and he is now going to trial for the murder of albert feltz one of two brothers who were the head of this Baldwin Feltz detective agency, which was the hired violent thugs from these mine owners in this particular area. And he's being prosecuted by none other than Albert Feltz's brother, Tom, who's just a vengeful fuck and just as nasty and greedy and yeah. malicious as, as his brother was, right? And in the meantime, as I said, it's been about a year. Shortly after that shootout, another strike started in that area. The miners were like, the fuck? Right? The yeah. fuck they what? And this was all about the evictions and the whole thing. Yeah. So there's been, a, as a direct result of this shootout, strife. And our man, smiling Sid Hatfield, our hero, goes to trial to stand for the crime he is accused of murder. All right. On the prosecution, led, of course, by Tom Feltz, the, the general argument is this. As you, pointed, as you mentioned earlier, the Reds, these Bolshevik fucks. We right. now have an enemy that we can name and that everyone recognizes is a nasty-ass violent enemy, those Bolshevik socialist Reds. And these union guys, including this man you see before you, is part of that, that thing that our whole country just fought against. Point one. Point two, Sid Hatfield, in fact, murdered Cable Testament 
He's the one who killed the mayor, not Albert Feltz. He killed the mayor himself. And why? To marry his young, beautiful widow, which he did 11 days later. Eleven <gasps> days. Are you telling me that there's a sex scandal in this hilf? Yes! <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Jesse Testerman, Cable Testerman's widow, mm -hmm. did in fact marry Sid Hatfield. Who wouldn't? <laughs> and then their third big piece of the prosecution's case against Sid Hatfield was a surprise gasps throughout the courtroom. When they bring in C.E. Lively, this guy walks in, sits down, and literally men faint. Because C.E. Lively was their friend. He ran the local in he ran the local bar he had been a miner he had been a member of the miners union he had hosted meetings public and private he had his arm around this guy and his arm around this guy and doing favors and i love you for peter 10 plus years yeah and when he takes the stand in sid hatfield's trial he admits that he had been a paid informant to the mine owners the whole time yep for years oh, and they kind of cross their arms and sit down like take that uh -huh. on the defense uh -huh. i wear two pairs of panties for exactly this kind of situation because you don't always know when a stud like john conniff's gonna slip into your history and get you soaking fucking wet for the defense Holy Hannah, John Conniff comes in, okay? So to the first point, prosecute, are they Reds, Bolsheviks? Fuck you and fuck your mother. These fucking guys fought those Reds. These men that you're yeah. pointing to are all veterans in that war. They fought and died and stood between bullets against this exact army. Where were you? How many Bolsheviks have you shot at? Okay, check one. Check two about Sid murdered Testerman to marry his wife. Fuck no, it's called chivalry, you ass. It's called living in the middle of fucking nowhere mm -hmm. and you die next to your best friend who grabs your hand covered in blood and says, look me in the eye and promise me that you will take care of my wife yeah. and you will take care of my home. And he dies and Jesse goes, this actually works for me. This yeah. is great because it's thin pickings out here. And to the third point with this C.E. Lively, this is, this, I love this. This guy, C.E. Lively, is like, yep, lied to everybody for 10 years. Yeah. Aren't I, I clever? I boom, boom. They're everybody's friends. So I'm these, the smart one. Yeah. And on this trail, you have a lot of people, including some senators and people who are like, so you told the union that you were on their side and joined their membership and signed up and took the pledge. And you were at the same time accepting money from the mine owners and undermining the union you pledged to be a member of. And he went, yep. And then they'd say, doesn't that seem bad to you? Don't you feel like that is a conflict morally? And he would go, nope. And at the end of this trial, Sid Hatfield and all of the other defendants are acquitted. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my God! I mean, holy, this is fucking, we don't win. This side never wins. They never win, they won. Yeah. 
And it was like, because the bad guys are so bad and their lies were so deep and the jury didn't believe it. And it was like, holy fuck. And Sid comes home, a hero. Mate one is like, you know, yay, we Parades love and confetti. A huge, oh my God. But then they were also like, but don't forget, man, we're in the midst of a really bad strike. Because that strike that had started when he had the initial shootout is not resolved yet. No. So he celebrated for having, you know, gotten the acquittal, but it's also like, you know, shit is still really bad. They strike for so long and they evict so many miners that are living in these tent cities now. So they've been kicked out of their shacks. They're now living in tents. Then they start shooting. They get on these trains and turn off the lights and put up steel and just start shooting into the tents. I mean, it is brutal to the point where the miners start to sabotage the towns. They cut power. They blow shit up. Yeah. <laughs> they snipe from the woods. They just start to get rid of this piece of railroad tie here. Yeah. Just, uh, right. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Right. And at the same time, our hero, Sid Hatfield, is going to his second trial. Now, this second trial sneaks in there. While he was on the stand in that first trial, there was a point during his questioning where one of the lawyers asks him, what about the accusations that you sabotaged critical infrastructure in Mohawk? And Sid does the thing I just did. I'm like, what? I don't, I don't know, know what you're talking about. He says, literally, I, that's the first I've heard of it. Yeah. And it's not really mentioned again during the trial. And he comes home, a hero acquitted, and then gets a subpoena. It's suspicious from the get-go, because whatever this transgression was that he's accused to have done, it took place over a year before. Yeah. And and the mine owners just don't wait a year. <laughs> like, to, to even get, if this go was, after people. The, the idea is it's all fucking made up, but they just want to get me. They don't like that I got yeah. away, and they want to get me. And he doesn't know what to do. Fuck because they fucking kill everybody all the time, right? So what do I do? And he has a, a somewhat sympathetic, high-powered sort of guy named Sam Montgomery. Sam Montgomery had run to be governor of West Virginia, and, and he was courting the union and non-union miners as his constituency, and he lost the governorship. He lost the governorship during that first trial, which means this guy Morgan is the governor of West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And even though governors who had courted the miners and had won their confidence and won their vote had let them down in the past, once they assumed office, they didn't actually work for the miners as hard as they things that they said they were going to do. At yeah. least they said they were gonna. Yeah. At least they pretended like they needed their vote. Lip service is better than nothing. Correct. Now we got this guy Morgan who was elected by the people who hate your fucking guts. And he doesn't owe you shit, fuck, right? But this guy, Sam Montgomery, who didn't win, but still kind of cares about the cause, consults Sid Hatfield and says, you know what I think you should do is go. Show up in Welch, the city where you are being called to appear in court, come unarmed, neatly dressed, on time, and they will extend something like justice and you will have people like me and some of the other folks who kind of got wind of you because of this huge last trial. And I think it's your only recourse. So Sid says, all right. And on Monday, August 1st, 1921, he and his wife, Jesse, get on a train to go to Welch. And he also brings with a co-defendant, Ed Chambers. Again, this is another guy. Yeah. You blew this shit up. So Ed Chambers, and he also has his wife, uh, Sally, with him. And um, they take that 5.15 a.m. train 
a very popular. When can't you just match you and me, I Peter? We go wait. to. A, I can't and wait we to get up it. at four mm. and get cleaned up and mm. packed and get to the train station by five o'clock for a five fifteen train. Mm. In a corset, if you're like. <laughs> in my corset, Yay. yes. Uh, a couple stops later, who should board the train? But C.E. Lively, that, that fucking backstabbing and cunt. And he comes in and he sits down in the same compartment. Isn't that weird? And they go, <sighs> They're all quiet. Mm. Everybody's quiet. It's very, it's very awkward. Awkward. It was a very awkward moment. Yeah, nobody likes that. They everybody. probably said things about his hat. Yeah. And then they get to Wantingham, they go to breakfast, and they sit down at breakfast, and there he is. See you lively at breakfast. They think this fucking scab. And now they're hanging out. They're going to wait for the 1030 train. Because when the 1030 train comes, that's their co-defendants, other people who have been accused of them. They're all going to go together into the courthouse and they're going to sign the thing. The whistle, the train's pulling in. Uh Uh-uh, our friends are coming. So Sid and his wife and Ed and his wife are walking arm in arm to the courthouse. And then they see coming down the sidewalk towards them, their friends who got off the train. And Sid waves at them. Hi, guys. We're all going to court together. Look at us. We're all showing up at the same time. And as he waves, and as his hand is up, C.E. Lively himself and other Baldwin Feltz agents Mm -hmm. come out from bushes, come out behind walls. Top of the staircase. Mm. First thing they do, which seems so weird in the split second that you would even think things were weird, is they shoot against the courthouse. They don't even hit anybody. Mm Mm-hmm. We later find out that this was the defense. The idea yeah. was that they shot first to make it look like, mm-hmm. Yeah. To we make it doing look it, we, we, it was self-defense. They shot Absolutely. first. So Sid Hatfield is shot like six times. He dies almost in, instantly. Ed Chambers kind of flees, gets shot. Like he rolls down the stairs a while and is pursued by a gunman who, once he's at the bottom of the stairs, shoots him in the back of the head. Jesse, Sid's wife, has covered her head. She's run into the courthouse for cover. Sally, Ed Chambers' wife, is chasing down the gunman, standing over her husband, beating him with an umbrella and screaming her fucking head off. Both these women are dragged away immediately. And guns are planted on the bodies of their husbands. Um, Specifically by a guy named Buster Pence, who was known for saying, bring two guns kill them with one, and give them the other. All of these guys, including C.E. Lively, stand trial. And can you believe it? There are eyewitnesses who can confirm that Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers were armed and shot first, and these bullet holes against the wall are able to prove that they acted in Mm self-defense, and they're acquitted. Now, I myself have not lived through the assassination of an icon. I'm a historian, so I fucking know about him. But I do remember my mom and some others talking about specifically the assassinations, uh, and, and especially because they were close together, of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy. And that there was something that happened to the revolutionary spirit of... Um, our citizens in the 1960s when those individuals were assassinated. Assassinations and executions are powerful because they do more than take out an individual. And that was what they did when they killed Sid Hatfield. 
it wasn't just that I wanted to fuck him. It wasn't just that he was a hero, a Hatfield who was interesting and dynamic and brave. He was a, he was a, an untouchable who couldn't be bribed Mm -hmm. that he put his life and his reputation on the line. And then he fought it in court and he won. And then he was willing to fight it with justice again and was murdered by a man much less than him. And it did to the people at the time a little, I can only imagine of what it did to me when I read it, which was these fucking pricks, right? Fuck these fucking pricks. And my hands are in fists, right? Right now. And that strike that was already happening, the temperature goes up. And one of the first thing that happens is Mother Jones, <laughs> Mother fucking Jones comes up and is like, ah, crack knuckles. Let's fucking... <laughs> She pulls up her skirt. Where's my Tweety Bird? I'm going to crunch these fucks. <laughs> right? And and Mooney and Keeney, they're like, fuck it, okay, fine. Yes, you're right. We have to march. We have to march. We have to do something. This is fucking nuts. We have gone to the courts. We have gone to our unions. We have gone to our president. We have gone to our state. We have gone to our federal. We have gone to each other. It does appear to me that even in our own constitution, I am ensured the right to stand up and defend my right to live free from this fucking shit. And you can feel it. And it's just this like, and also the miners who have been living in tents for months, some of them are like, oh, you're gonna throw me in jail? Sounds great. Jail sounds fucking great. Even though you come through the tent cities and you execute us and there's been tons of violence and like murder in our beds, I'm telling you right now, we have capital N, nothing to lose. Yeah, there's a lot of us, by the way. Right. And there's not, your, and your jails jail are kind of that thing. You know, yeah, like, go ahead, put us, put us all in one place. And we'll, yeah. Now, on the other side of them, you've got this guy, Don Chafin, who is known as the czar of Logan County because his family runs fucking everything. I mean, this is all a monopoly. Everyone's family, you're the sheriff, the mayor, the courthouse, the licensor, the notary, the mm. deputy, the train, everything's in the same family. Don Chafin also had on every single train going in or out of town, a personal guard riding that train and watching everybody. And the number of door-to-door salesmen and low-key politicians and even traveling ministers that were beaten nearly to death because the agents thought, you look like a miner mm-hmm. and you look like you could be bringing union literature in here. I mean, it's unbelievable the the tight hold you know what i mean yeah, that they have the on control this. yeah he can feel it and it's true these miners from all these other states be coming girl the word has spread the violence is happening mm-hmm. we're getting us some tennessee motherfuckers we're getting us some illinois assholes are like not on my watch and the union is a union and they're coming to their brothers and sisters in west virginia to show a solid force and and the numbers are coming upwards of 10,000 miners are coming to fight this fight and it ain't for the healing waters although word. the healing waters are very nice i hear they're very nice Don Chafin is very excited. He's only got like 3,000 guys, 3,000 volunteers, but he's got all the guns and all the money, and he's also got high ground. And he's like cracking his knuckles, like Mm -hmm. fucking finally. Mother Jones. Now, we've known Mother Jones. You've heard our gal. And she cracks her knuckles, and she says fuck, and she's been like, let motherfucking go. Yeah. It's hard to know what happens here. It is, it is a historical mystery. 
to me. But Mother Jones says to the miners, stop, don't do this. You will be destroyed. Even though they have these huge numbers, and it's, again, it's this act of injustice. She was putting her hands over their guns. She's standing in front of them. She's saying, please don't do this. Please don't do this. You'll die. Yep. And she pulls up this piece of paper, mm-hmm. and she says, you have to stop because I hold in my hand a telegram from President Harding himself who has promised to me himself that he will personally put an end to the mine guard system, which is all they want. It's really all they've ever wanted. And it's enough that the miners stop and kind of gather around and are like, wait, 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 maybe we don't have to fight and die and be Mm -hmm. thrown in jail. Like she says, they got the thing. And Frank Keeney and Mooney are like, suspicious. hello, mother. You know, would you mind if I took a little if I examined that I sheet of paper, your parchment that you have, you're holding yeah. up? Um, no, you can't. I don't want you to. It's none of your business. She says it's none of your fucking business. I'm what? like, it is. You held it up and made it my business. <laughs> you said, here's your business. I'd like to see that business. She won't show them. Yeah. But it's put a fucking wrench in the fan enough yeah, yeah. that they have to stop in the midst of all this craziness. And they get in touch with Harding's office and they're like, dude, you yeah. super quick, did you guys by any chance completely change everything about the way you do everything yeah. and, and tell Harding Mother like, no, Jones I, Har- President Harding's been in the Adirondacks right now. He's exactly. listening to stand up. Yeah, yeah, not only is Harding not here, but like doesn't sound like him. Yeah. And they were like, we didn't think so either. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Mooney and Frank Keeney are now just like, what the fuck are we gonna do? Mm-hmm. We've got 10,000 angry miners with guns ready to get. And we've got a well-prepared and enthusiastic opponent. Never good. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what the fuck we're gonna do. What do we want? What are we doing, right? Harding, of course, is, he didn't send the telegram, but he is well aware of this drumbeat of like, Mr. President, there's an armed conflict. And there's an armed conflict. So These miners are to stay out of it. He doesn't want to send federal troops. They keep, you know, the governor keeps asking to send federal troops. He doesn't want to do it. Thank it's like, know. this is your problem. States Isn't there somebody rights. can solve it? You said you had a militia. Or you said you had a National Guard and you never uh, created it. And why didn't you? That's your own fault. Uh, I'm busy. Right. I, I don't like this. I, 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 I'll be right there, honey. I, yes. I've just got called to dinner. Listen, Did you, if you hear can call that? me tomorrow. Ring, ring. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, exactly. pot roast, my favorite. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can harding hear you. <laughs> <laughs> but he does send a general. <gasps> general Bandholt. Okay, General Bandholt's kind of a good guy. And his job is so specific, which is stop the conflict and bring peace. And he doesn't give a fuck. He doesn't give a fuck about the miners. He doesn't give a fuck about the mine owners. He just wants to make sure that we can calm this thing down and take this off of the president's desk and not let it escalate. And how do we do that? He starts with the governor and he says, Mm -hmm. okay. And And the governor's like, oh, oh my God, thank God you're here. Um, What I need you to do is like help me destroy these fucking miners and their rebellion. And Bandholtz is like, well, that's not exactly <laughs> that's not what really. I was told. My mandate's a little bit different than and that. And he says, I, I, of course, would like to speak to the mouthpieces for your other side to see what we can do before we just mm-hmm. annihilate all of these folks, right? <laughs> and he says, I'm going to go talk to 
Frank Keeney and Mooney, would you like to come, Governor Morgan, and be a part of the dialogue in which I ascertain from them what it is exactly they're marching for and what it is they want? Yeah. And Governor Morgan says, I don't think I'd be helpful. Yeah. They hate my guts. I hate their guts. And it's not going to be helpful. So, no. Yeah. And there's and, a really good Buster Keaton silent film at the movie theater during that exact yeah. time you're planning on and being I've with that. And I've already changed And it I have my ticket. <laughs> It yeah. was it was five cents and I'm supposed to go with my yeah. wife. And she oh. is a bitch. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he says no. And so Bandholtz is like, okay. So he goes and he finds Frankini and he sits down with them. Hi guys, listen, you're gonna stop this march. And you're gonna put your guns down. And if you don't, we, the military, will stop it like that. Mm-hmm. And the reason I snap is because that's what he did. By all accounts, he snapped in their faces. We'll snuff you out. <laughs> and Frank Keeney and Mooney are like, I think you're, you will. He probably will. Just a second. And he says, Can yes. You hold for just, I just I, want to talk to, I just want to talk to uh, Mr. Mooney. When for you a say. Mr. Mooney, I, I think he really means He means it. Do that. We've never so been terribly should we, confident. Should we go tell the guys? I think we should tell the guys. Okay. You know what? Listen, you we're going to go tell the guys that you are serious. And how good of a snapper you are. And you, the snap was loud and we heard <laughs> right. it loud and clear. But they also say, we have all these like bogus warrants and our buddy Mother Jones was just like, I have a telegram. So what would be super helpful for us if we are going to go to our guys right now and tell them that the U.S. military are with the snap, we're going to tell them how dramatic you were. Don't worry mm-hmm. about that. Um, <laughs> but in addition to your fabulous snap, it'd be soupy if you could also give us something written that says, if you guys disband, you'll be safe. Like something yeah. official from you that says, I'm a real guy. and This is a real thing. And specifically, the deal is this. Your 10,000 guys all been coming in. They're going to get on a trains. We're going to have trains. Mm-hmm. They're going to go to a baseball diamond. They're going to hang out there. And these trains are going to come, and then they're going to get on those trains, and they're going to go the fuck home. Mm-hmm. Deal? And Keeney and Mooney are like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. So they Seems take like this letter idea, from you know. Bandholtz. Keeney and Mooney get out there, find a huge guys who are marching, and they're like, we will be absolutely annihilated by the military. This guy Bandholtz said so. And they do, as expected, come out and be like, bullshit. Oh, you wrote it down, I bet, right? And it's like, it's all hinging on this thing. And they're like, we actually do have all this thing signed by him. We knew him. you'd ask. We're so, so we brought a thing asked. on paper. And can you believe this? Think about all the crosshairs in history that come to this moment. They present the piece of paper to a large front of this march, critical to turning this thing around. Say, yes, look, fucking Bandholt signed this. And a guy in Southern West Virginia comes forward who had served in World War I in Europe under General Bandholtz and could confirm his signature. signature. That's his signature. <gasps> that one had me up on my feet when I read it. That I was, was like, so wow. And he turns around and says to the guys, mm, it's for real. It's for real. This is this is a real threat and it's honest. And that was actually and the it, origins <sighs> of the word, uh, the words for reals. Correct. All right. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. Write it down. Also, there are a lot of tangential interests that are starting to culminate around this. Billy Mitchell is one of my favorites. He is a World War I air combat 
aficionado who has kicked ass from the air in World War I, who has been, since the war, advocating for the ways that air power can take care of civil disturbances here in the United States. And he has been advocating Sounds for Sounds innocent enough. Exactly. And he's like, this is great! Finally, I'll be able to bomb Americans at home. I oh, oh, I've been wasting my skills overseas. This is great. And he says to the newspapers, when they're like, I'm sorry, are you saying that you're going to bomb American citizens? And he goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to gas them first. <laughs> we'll drop tear gas on them first. And then non-lethal, we'll bomb. Non-lethal. That's It'll right. just really make their eyes burn and their throats and burn. And if they don't retreat, then we're going to shoot them. And I was like, oh, my God. But things are like, okay, 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 okay. This slaughter, whatever this is going to be, we think we can we can keep it at bay. And Keeney and Moody have the 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 marchers now. They're communicating. Mm, we should back off. They go to this baseball diamond and wait for the trains. The trains are going to take you back home. The governor has promised. And they said that. And Keeney was like, okay, so that we're going to go to Charleston. We're going to powwow with the fucking the union mine workers that powers that be. And as they're heading out of town. They run into a guy named Bad Lewis White. And Bad Lewis White... Is Christian name. Correct. Really wants to fight. Now, the historical record seems somewhat split on whether or not Bad Lewis White was working for the mine operators, trying to stoke this fight so that they could finally have this out once and for all, or if he is actually such an angry miner, so beaten down by this system that he that he is refuses to retreat. I it, it doesn't appear conclusive what his actual motivations were. But what we know is that after Mooney and Keeney leave, he goes into that baseball diamond and is like, we aren't retreating. You know what they're doing? They are shooting women and children in our homes right now. Mm-hmm. He gets a couple of trains and he turns them around and he's getting everybody riled up, riled up, riled up. And he's sabotaged just enough that Don Chafin, who's up there on the high ground, fucking hard for war, is like, you know what would just get this whole thing going? Is if I went and arrested a bunch of guys for nothing. Oh, would I hate that. So Don Chafin gets his most brutal guy, who's already known, Brockus. Everybody knows this guy's a fucking violent asshole. To go and arrest these five guys who had embarrassed his agents a few months before they had yep. found them in the woods and disarmed them, didn't like the way they were spoken to. It was like, let's go get those guys. Yep. So they go out there and they arrest them, of course. They bloody, beaten, shoot a couple of them. Then have a march in front of them as they kind of keep going down the road, just being fucks. And at one point, as they're walking down this road, they, right, and they stop in their path. And a person calls out from these blind woods, what's the password? And they yell back, amen, (laughs) which is not the password. (laughs) And the fighting, and that is the official beginning of the Battle of Blair Mountain, my guy. Here we are. And can you please tell the good people, Peter, what our heroes are wearing tied about their necks? Well, the origins of the uh, moniker redneck Mm. are not what you think they are. Mm. It's not about farmers Mm. or people that worked out in the fields getting their necks burnt by the sun. 
the redneck originated because the mine workers wanted to be able to identify each other from great distances and in groups, and so they all decided that they were going to wear red kerchiefs around their necks. And so hmm. they were, well, do I have to say it? I think I will, rednecks. Indeed. And how they were identified by their aggressors. Get yeah. them rednecks. Get them rednecks. And yep. that red bandana has been a symbol of revolution. I mean, you know. Yep. And I believe the other side, others. they were, they because everybody... The people on the other side, well, not not the federal government troops, but all of the the conglomeration of the the Feltz groups and all these different militias and the in the in the deputized citizens that were told to come and save the world mm -hmm. from these terrible, you know, miners. They wore like a white band or something like that. White and black too. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, to to identify them. Yeah. Oh, death, please spare me over till another year. Once the shit starts happening. You have these 10,000 miners against these 3,000-ish mm -hmm. volunteers, Don Chafin. But Don Chafin has, as I said, the high ground yep. and all the money. And machine guns. And machine and, guns and, and holitzers. Yep. And they also have, there's a 25-mile front. There are scenes from these trenches that are indistinguishable from World War One. If yeah. you just took a snapshot and asked me, which was this in Maitwan or was this in France, I wouldn't be able to tell you at a glance. The battle lasts for three days, day and night, constant firing. On September 1st, <laughs> the planes arrive and drop bombs on the miners. That's not Billy Mitchell. And it wasn't the U.S. government that dropped yeah. the bombs or flew the planes. These three planes belonged to Don Chafin. When we talk about money and we talk about the disproportionate thing of money, yeah. Billy Mitchell was not allowed to do this. The U.S. government and even the state of West Virginia was yeah. like, wow, yeah. no. But Don Chafin was like, God, that sounds I'm going to drop a pipe brilliant. bomb and I'm going to drop some gas. Shrapnel. I have planes, yeah. right? And one of the planes crashed, and they didn't ultimately end up killing a lot of people with these bombs. But the idea mm -hmm. that it even happened and was allowed. Yeah, I don't know if they killed ridiculous. anybody, but the fact that they dropped them at all. Like, they dropped ridiculous. a pipe bomb, and it was like it landed near these two women who were washing. Yes. And then they dropped the gas, and the gas kind of hit in the wrong spot and yeah. kind of flew off. But the, the fact that they did it at all was yes. insane. Yes, and the intention, it matters, right? Yeah. Now, our guy, General Bandholtz... <laughs> who had turned his ass around, had done his snapping and had gone home, is now like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Oh, fuck. So he turns his ass around and ends up coming into this conflict ultimately with 2,100 troops. And to your point earlier, these are the guys everybody's been waiting for. Everyone yeah. believes that these U.S. federal troops will be the savior. They're yep. either going to crunch the rebellion or they're going to save the rebellion. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a, a troop of union mine workers that see these troops first, and they're like, hi, hi. And the troops are like, hi, guys, give me your guns. And the leader guy kind of it goes, I have a permit for this gun. It's mine. And he goes, okay, you can keep that one. Why don't you take us to the rest of your guys? And he stops at this point and says, well, are you going to take their guns? And he says, if they don't have permits, yes. And he goes, okie doke. Are you going to take the other side's guns? And he says, if they don't have permits, yes. And he says, okay. And again, the telepathy in those hills. Somehow they're able to communicate to these troops. They're able to go. And then once they get the guys, can you believe it? They just don't actually have that many guns. Isn't that weird? 
Because they all went up there with guns. They all said they had guns. But once they got there, they said, oh, I didn't. I didn't bring mine. I don't have a permit. And if I don't this have This is a, a gun permit, I'm holding? Oh, I, I don't, don't know. That. I don't. So, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of them at this point are not only surrendering, they're hiding their guns. They're putting them away just yeah, in case they need to get case. them somewhere else. And, and like, we're just kind of spread, right? So in the meantime, these troops, so the, that's how the troops kind of meet the union side mm-hmm. or the miners side. Like, yeah. give us your guns. Everybody calm down. Then they head over to Don Chafin's side to be like, okay, now you guys too. We got to yeah. deal with you. And when they get into there, these guys, they're roaring drunk. They get into some headquarters area and yeah. everybody who has any kind of amount of power is just three sheets. Sloshy. Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for it. One, they're bad guys. Bad guys don't have great, con- if their conscience is bad, they don't, yeah. they don't do great. But also they won. Yeah. They know what just yeah. happened. It just, it's over and they won, right? And it was, it was about 24 hours after the US military arrives. It is completely done. No more shots are fired. And the original idea is like, wow, <sighs> now we got to go get the bodies. I mean, we've been firing at each other for days. We had trench trenches like World War One, and now it's done. Now we're all going to bring out our dead. Mm-hmm. And there were only 20, give or take the same from both sides. Mm-hmm. A mystery to pretty much everyone, even at the time and now. They're like, that's right. Nobody disputes that number. No one yeah. says way more were killed. All the bullets and just that. All them bullets, all them bombs, all that stuff. It was like, it was a combination, I think, of honestly the wooded West Virginia. It's not so much that they were bad shots. It was mm-hmm. just that everyone was hiding and they just weren't, they, you know what I mean? And they didn't the meet. And, there yeah. was not a man on man. It was a lot of blind shooting into where those guys are. That right. was, it had stopped before we get into that crunchy part where everyone meets in the mm-hmm. middle of the open field, right? And really, you better stop was the point for the military. Bandholtz and those troops that came in, my job is to establish peace and order. Justice? Not my job. If you want justice, you talk to somebody else. My job was to restore peace and order. We done did that. And immediately after the military leaves, the arrests start. Okay? Because this is still an unjust rural unaccounted area right yep. so even though there were less than 20 deaths there were over a thousand indictments for murder yep. okay and, and a lot they... of more state from the state exactly because the state was like well the federal government's like well you know there's a lot of shit that went down down there yeah. and we're not going to pursue this stuff and right. we're just going to drop it and the state was like well we're not going to drop it no exactly because those miners were out of control out of so control and they were trying and that and what's interesting about that is Again, if you want to tip your hat to justice, they start bringing in all these guys into court and the juries just don't, they're like, well, technically the president of the United States said that the miners needed to put their guns down on August 30th. And they didn't put their guns down until September 1st, which makes this technically treason and an insurrection against the president. And the juries were like, wow, no. It's, it's pretty clear they were not coming after the government. They were coming after your fucking shitty asses, right? Yeah. So to almost to a person, all these people that were brought in with all of the might and all of the injustice were acquitted. The true victim, the one who died at the end of this battle was the union. Yep. They went from 20,000 members in West Virginia to 1,000. What's the point of joining a union? It doesn't make any sense. And it ironically wasn't really until the 1930s when everybody got fucked, when the entire country got laid off, 
that the suffering of unfair labor and the dangers of the monopolies and the and the problems with this billionaire 1% class and then the poor rest of us came to a head and there was the Great Depression and the New Deal and Franklin Delano Roosevelt that we got a true federal toothed enforced contract between the workers of this yeah. country and specifically the unions and the right to unionize and and the corporations which of course is an unsteady it's an unsteady thing and and even though the union got strong again and in the 50s it got strong in its ups and its downs they did leave behind frank keeney our guy our 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 dead poet society from the very beginning guy ends up um, a parking lot attendant. Mm-hmm. After all of that struggle. And the union won't recognize him. They don't invite him to shit. Most people who know him in his last years don't even know who he is or what he does or what he had done. Uh, Mooney kills himself in the 1950s after working as a superintendent of the mines. And I, I get to the end of this story and it's not easy to find a moral. Because the bad guys win this one. The bad guys, they win every round and they win the whole war. And then they take their fucking names off of it. So we can't even posthumously shame them. And I've been searching, you know, since I read this book and I've been sitting with this history. What do I say about this? I wear a red bandana, big deal. I pick it for my union. It's hard, you know, to know like, how does this factor in and what do we do? And I thought when I started reading this history that this was a labor story. This is a modern labor story. I'm I'm a striking woman in a city and this will be a history that will resonate because of labor. And I think what it actually is for me is a reflection of the people that the middle class can comfortably believe are less than human. And in my world, it's not labor, it's our unhoused population because it's the part I'm guilty of. Mm -hmm. The middle class was a perpetrator of this story because they were reading all those newspaper photos articles that you're talking about. They have by far the largest number and by far the largest voting and by far the largest fortune. But they lived astride the lie that you could become that 1% if you work hard enough. And if you fuck up, you'll be one of those animals underneath you that you are in a tenuous place. And those animals underneath you are a pack of wild dogs and they will snatch what little you have the instant you give it to them. And this belief that we must have coal, the trains must run, and you're slovenly and stupid and low enough to work in those places, I would never do that. You live in these tents and your children have no teeth and your wives are so skinny. Yuck. And I think about the city I live in And if all of the unhoused people in this city stood up and fought for their human rights, I don't know what I'd do. Because I am afraid of them too. That's the indictment that we all have to live with in our own hearts and our own minds. Mm. 
And if I were a history teacher, and if I was teaching in a school where I was being told presently there are certain things you can't talk about, you can't, for example, teach the history of slavery, I would say, okay, <laughs> I'm going to tell you about the Battle of Blair Mountain. <laughs> because we can't get away from this. And we shouldn't. Right? No. Hmm. You know, I don't know about you. I feel like every good fuck ends in crying. <laughs> I didn't well, know it's a I little death, cry. isn't it? It's just a little oh, death. Oh, Lord. I didn't yeah. know I was going to cry with you. Well, um, you know, the weeping comes because the weeping is required. Oy. And the weeping has a justification. Oy. So emotional and intellectual and in every other way. Mm. But And this is a heavy, I mean, you know, this is a... Uh, some pieces of history have a lighter side and some pieces of history mm. have a heavier side. And this one's a pretty heavy one that not a lot of people are aware of that, mm. that has, still resonates. It resonates uh, in terms of class and in terms of economics and in terms of politics and in terms of, you know, pa people living passively because they're just content enough. Yeah. You know, and um, so... You know, I just want to say uh, I am blown away and amazed <laughs> at how much work you did to dig so deeply into this. And I really, really respect that and appreciate it. And I'm touched and honored that you'd have me on. And I was oh. sitting here sort of staring at you go on <laughs> in my mesmerized way like, oh. wow, she's really, she really went in. And so... I really appreciate that, and I really appreciate you having me on. Mm. So. Well, I really, really appreciate you coming, and 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 thanks for the health, man. And do you have a cigarette? I do. Fuck it. Smoke them. Smoke them, bitch. <laughs> <laughs>Peter Brett Meyer. You know, I'd say go find him, but honestly, you can't help it. <laughs> you turn on your TV for five minutes, he'll wander into frame eventually. Coming up next on the Hills podcast is Alan Turing, the incredible mathematician and codebreaker who is credited with shortening World War II by years and saving countless lives. Tragically, he proved a little too gay and autistic to fully live a life of his own. My guest is the hilarious and irreverent Heidi Maver, who joins me from her home in Yorkshire, England. We have a riot, and you won't want to miss it. Until then, our theme song was composed and performed by Kat Perkins. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode, or by emailing us, hilfpodcast at gmail.com, or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. If you'd like to become a patron of the pod, <laughs> oh, go to patreon.com slash hilfpodcast and see what's cooking. This has been Hilf, history I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party and everybody's coming.